Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I thought that we might return to our sermons in the book of Revelation, which we have set to the side for some months now. We will continue our studies in the history of the service of song, but it was becoming more and more plain to me that that might continue for some time if we are to continue with the same level of detail. It's a good thing for us to diversify and balance our diet. So for the um, foreseeable future, at least in the short term, we will go back and forth, not every other week, but uh, section by section, revelation, and then back to the service of song and back and forth again. Because although the... um, service of song is nourishing it is nourishing in mostly one regard at least our study of it whereas the book of Revelation has a diverse uh, material that's good in almost every conceivable way for the soul but I also started to become concerned that we might lose the thread in uh, Revelation this morning I wanted to do mostly two things One, I wanted to uh, do a review of our subject matter in Revelation, bring us back to our current position, and then make a little bit more um, progress in a display of the glory of the Savior Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth Neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts... And four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them hearts and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, if you will remember, we receive the divinely inspired outline for this book write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter in spite of the fact that this book has proven uh, so controversial so difficult of interpretation it is one of the few books of scripture that provides its own outline which you would think uh, a very helpful thing. This book has three uh, divisions, but not of equal length. The things which John had seen uh, uh, were the vision of Jesus Christ in the midst of the candlesticks in Revelation chapter 1, that opening vision. The things which are, well, those were the... Uh, various conditions of the churches of Asia Minor and no doubt representative of all the different conditions in which a person might find a church a congregation or a presbytery and then you have the large division chapter 4 and following of the things that shall be hereafter we ought not to be disturbed that the divisions are not of equal length at the very beginning of the book, the Lord Jesus uh, notified us through John that the principal subject matter of this book would be things future. Look back at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. 
Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. These verses are very helpful. You remember our commitment uh, at the very beginning of this study was to interpret the text as the Holy Ghost primarily in chapter 1 teaches us to interpret the text. We are notified here that the principal subject matter of this book are historical events, but historical events that at that point would be future to John. These are things that are uh, characterized here in the introduction as things which must shortly come to pass. So these are... um, you remember this is not an idealistic history this is not a book that simply teaches us about general spiritual dynamics but rather here we have a prophecy concerning events that were future to John but nonetheless real historical events that had been decreed by God himself the book is to be opened and read this book of Revelation and then we are told that the time is at hand the uh, significance of this phrase is not that all of these events would be shortly fulfilled but it's in contrast to what was told to Daniel when the same subject matter was revealed to him Daniel was told to go his way for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end Now John is notified that the uh, prophecy is no longer sealed up or closed up, but rather opened. And uh, John no longer has to await a future time, but rather the time is at hand. The prophecy is going to begin now its fulfillment in history. So John had arrived at the final movement of history. No longer waiting, but the time is present. Indeed, the uh, visions that John will see will uh, begin to be fulfilled shortly after uh, John's time. After uh, Revelation 2 and 3, in which we get the condition of the seven churches and Christ's spiritual counsel to them and to us, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 sets the visionary scene for the unfolding history. And I have told you, and I I would simply remind you, I think that the interpretation of this book so frequently miscarries because uh, interpreters are so anxious to get on to chapter 6. They don't spend enough time in chapters 4 and 5 and almost none at all in chapter 1. And so they neglect uh, the teaching of the Holy Ghost on the proper interpretation of this book. We have spent a good amount of time in this visionary scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and we will be wrapping it up shortly. But if we are going to understand what follows, we must understand if I might uh, uh, use the language of the playhouse, we must understand the setting of the stage 
where God is and what He is looking at. If you will remember, John is, as it were, standing at the very uh, doorway looking into the tabernacle. Of course, this is uh, visionary. This is a visionary setting and scene. As he looks into this uh, tabernacle, heavenly and spiritual realities are uh, unveiled before his eyes. Things that are normally hidden from the world of men are open to him and he's able to see the true spiritual character of people and events in history those things are normally hidden from the eyes of men but unveiled for John he is looking into the holy place but as we had occasion to observe the veil is gone there is no longer any veil standing between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. The divine ark, the throne of God, is visible and observable to John from his place. In this holy place, he finds 24 elders, the 24 priest kings who are ever attending upon uh, the divine throne. This ought not to surprise us from ancient times, from the time of David. The uh, courses of the priests and the Levites had been divided into 24 so that coming up by turns they might ever wait upon the divine majesty. Here we don't find them waiting by turns but rather all together. And they have a representative man, a principal man in there representing them all. So these 24 are representative of all of the people of God. We find the menorah in that place as well, which is identified as the Holy Spirit, illuminating these seven churches. We have no light of our own, but rather the light of the Spirit in our midst is the light of the church and the light of the world. There was a glassy pavement before the divine throne, very much like what we saw in Exodus chapter 24. When Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the elders of Israel had the vision of God. And the throne is most immediately surrounded by four living creatures, constantly uh, proclaiming the glory of God and calling upon the other 24 to worship, representative of the ministers of the church, calling upon all of the people of God to worship God. And, of course, we're not surprised by the activity of the holy place. They worship the eternal and omnipotent creator who does all things after the counsel of his own will. For thy pleasure, because thou hast willed it, they are and were created. So God is greatly glorified in the fourth chapter for his works of creation and his providential government of all things something that will be very important for what follows because the church passing through many tribulations needs the comfort of knowing that the sovereign is on the throne and that all of these things are under his control and divine direction for his own glory but also for their good for their spiritual well-being as we come to our present chapter the fifth chapter we find a scroll 
in the right hand of God the Father. And in this we have a prophetic history of God's special providence toward his church. So we will at this point uh, be taking up a history of the world from John's time to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and entrance into the eternal state. But we find this scroll first in the hands of God and we find this the focus ever to be not just on the world in general but upon the church and the world only in as much as it has a bearing upon his people. But we first find that book sealed. It is closed up, completely sealed up with seven seals. And then a challenge comes from one that is identified as a mighty angel who is worthy to open the book, to break the seals, and to read and reveal its contents. No creature comes forward to take that honor to himself. And John mourns. No doubt there was a great desire in his heart to know the contents of the book. The contents of the book had been promised to him, if you will, in chapter 1, and now he comes to it, and the book is closed up, and John mourns. But one of those 24 elders encourages John, although no creature is worthy to look into the scroll of history, Jesus Christ is overcome and prevails to open the book. And we get in uh, images a very full picture of the person of our Savior. He is fully God. He's upon the divine throne. And He has divine attributes, omniscience and omnipotence and the fullness of the Spirit. He is also fully man, slain, risen, and ever living and we see his threefold mediatorial office we see something of his kingship he is prevailing and conquering his enemies for the sake of his people these would be the horns and the eyes of his government we see him as priest a slain sacrifice a sacrificing priest and an interceding priest And we see him as prophet, given the scroll of history to reveal to his people. And with this in view, we find a response from the inhabitants of the holy place, which is the worship of this worthy Christ. The creatures and the uh, 24 elders worship. And remember, this is a spiritual view of the hidden life of the church. John will be able to see things that are visible concerning the church, things that are visible to the world of men concerning the church when he turns to look into the uh, tabernacle courtyard. We'll see that later. But when he gazes into the holy place, it's the church's hidden inner spiritual life. And here we find something of the nature of their spiritual worship now we will return as I have promised to the uh, prayers and the um, praise the harp praise 
But we are told later on in the book that they've been given these bowls of incense and they have been given these hearts. Their hearts have been fitted by divine grace to worship and worship they do. They fall down before the divine throne. They fall down at the feet of the Savior as their most proper position. And now we take up the matter of the new song. Again, we'll come back to the formal considerations of what does this have to do with our own worship and our own service of song. But we don't need to resolve those questions to look at the substance of their spiritual worship. The matter that is in their hearts and is being lifted up in worship to heaven. Verse 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This verse, as well as the one following, can be divided into two basic parts. First of all, there is a declaration. You might call it a doxological or worship declaration. On the part of the people of God, of the Lamb's worthiness to take the book. So first you have a declaration. And then you get three reasons demonstrating the worthiness of the Lamb to open the book. And in our verse we have the first two reasons. He was slain and he has redeemed his people out of all of the earth. And then, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the third reason, which is he's made them priests and kings unto God and they shall reign upon the earth so first let's look at the declaration of the Lamb's worthiness to take the book thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof Durham in glancing at this said that this might uh, this might not seem so very glorious unless we remember the preceding context that there was no creature in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was worthy. And here Christ is differentiated and distinguished from all others as worthy. Worthy to take the book and to break the seals and to reveal its contents to his people. And then we get the first two of the three reasons that demonstrate Christ's worthiness and first is thou wast slain this might seem like a very strange declaration because in all of scripture death by hanging or suspension was always considered a particularly shameful a particularly ignominious form of death And yet here it is portrayed as being one of the grounding reasons for Christ's worthiness and glory. We'll come back to this uh, great theme, but Christ's shameful death indeed has become an occasion, one of the great occasions, one of the preeminent occasions for his glorification. Christ died and submitted to such a shameful death for two principal reasons, which are certainly 
glorious reason. It was part of his perfect service and obedience to his Father, out of his perfect and infinite love for his Father, and it was done out of the service of man and love for those that have been promised to him. So first, his death is declared as a reason for his worthiness to open the book and receive the glory of opening the book. And then second, and thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Here the greatness of his redemption is extolled. Durham had a very interesting meditation upon the significance of the language of redemption. He said that a redemption has three, uh, three components or parts to it. You might think of it in the terms of, uh, you remember in ancient Israel, if a man had mortgaged away his inheritance, he could redeem it. But the, re- the redemption had the three parts. You have the prior and principal claim to the property. Second, you had the mortgaging of the property away. And then third, you had the price paid to redeem it or to bring it back under one's own uh, possession and power. And this is certainly a fitting image of our uh, redemption. With respect to God's people, he had a prior claim to them in the decree of election. The claim was mortgaged in that we were uh, sold under sin and liable to the divine justice and then Christ appeared and paid the redemption price so that we might become again the proper possession of God. When we talk about the price and the glory of Christ and the payment of the price we consider what was needed in order to make satisfaction to offended majesty. And although it is very difficult for us to calculate just what price would be necessary in order to satisfy divine justice, it's difficult for us in our finiteness and in our fallenness to calculate just what price would be necessary in order to render such a satisfaction and make such a payment. But the scripture makes it clear that nothing less than his precious blood would do. That was the great price that was required. Nothing less than the blood of a divine person. Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. And interestingly enough, Paul characterizes it as the blood of God himself. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased by his own blood. The church of God, God being the nearest antecedent to his. He hath purchased by his blood. So nothing less than the blood of the divine person, the Lord Jesus Christ, would do and remember although the divine nature has not uh, blood to bleed uh, 
It is that divine nature that gives the, all the worth and dignity to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is what makes his blood so very precious in the eyes of the Father. And Christ is also glorified in the extent of the redemption. You remember the ancient promise made to him, recorded in the prophecy of Isaiah, that it was too small a thing for him to be the Savior for only one people, but that the Father would glorify him in making him a Savior to the uttermost parts of the earth. In this vision, we find him thus glorified. And we have a confirmation of a, of a doctrine that we have been laboring in long. The invisible church is Catholic and universal. Uh, in a former age, it was indeed for the most part restricted to Israelites. But it was always determined and decreed that it would extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Christ's people, his invisible church, is a Catholic and universal people. And that's why we say also the visible church is also Catholic and universal. That invisible church makes itself visible in all the places in which it finds itself. I wanted to take just one doctrine from our text. And that is that the Redeemer is worthy of praise and adoration turn with me back to Paul's epistle to the Philippians chapter 2 In the second of Philippians, we find a most perfect parallel to our own text. That Christ's humiliation has redounded to his glory. As he himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the same uh, dynamic that's presented in the text of Revelation. Here we find the Lord Jesus Christ, even though the eternal Son and very God, 
in obedience to his Father and in the fulfillment of the requirements of the covenant of grace, humbles himself, takes the form of a servant, and submits himself unto death. But not just any death, the shameful death of the cross, which was characterized as bearing the curse of the whole law. And because of this, verse 9, you get the turn with the wherefore. Because of this, God has highly exalted him. Christ humbled himself to death. And now God has exalted him to the heavens and given him a name which is above every name and that his name, every knee should bow. And proclaim him to be Lord and King to the glory of God the Father. Which is most striking that uh, to thus glorify Christ in no way robs the Father of his glory, but is rather part and parcel with it. And so although this is our doctrine, Christ is worthy of praise and adoration. It does set before us a practical question. There is no doubt that at the judgment, every knee will bow. The only question is whether we will do so willingly or unwillingly. Do you number yourself as one of those in the midst of a people that is made willing in the day of his power? As the 110th Psalm says, a people willing to bow the knee or are our knees going to be broken with that rod of iron and are we going to be Forced to submit ourselves to this great king. If we would be reasonable creatures, we will submit ourselves willingly and bow the knee most gladly and gratefully. And you see in this the great madness of sin its great sinfulness and insanity that we would run after our sins to our own destruction and at the end have a forced subjugation and eternal punishment. Let us be wise unto salvation and submit ourselves and humble ourselves willingly. And I could think of no better way to demonstrate our willingness to praise and adore our Redeemer than singing his praise. Although we do not find the words of uh, Revelation chapter 5 in our Psalter, we certainly do find the content of it. Turn with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is titled a psalm for Solomon and it no doubt is in in praise of his kingship and a declaration of Solomon's glory and yet at the same time its fulfillment cannot be in Solomon. Never was Solomon's kingship so great, never his kingdom so large, never so prosperous as we find here 
This is nothing other than a song in praise of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one that is greater than Solomon. We'll sing verses 11 through 19. But first I wanted to show you the, the sameness of the subject matter. In verse 12, we find that Christ is salvation to all who will call upon him. As we found in Revelation chapter 5, Christ is extolled as worthy of worship and praise because of the great redemption which he had wrought. And finally in verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed at his name. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. Please rise. Psalm 72 verses 11 through 19 to the tune Old 44. to service to 